Last week, we started off the message with a bit of a science physics lesson. This week, we're starting off with a bit of a grammar or maybe a vocabulary lesson would be the right term. Have you ever heard the term imperium? Imperium, does that name or that word ring a bell? According to Merriam-Webster, imperium is the supreme power or absolute dominion that someone holds. It is supreme power or absolute dominion. It stems from a Latin word and was originally developed by the Romans. Imperium was the supreme executive power granted to magistrates or the emperor. It involves both military oversight and judicial authority. It's the sort of absolute supreme reign that they would give at different times, the Senate or whatever, to their emperors. We see examples of this sort of idea, imperium, the idea of a, the buck stopping with someone, even in our society today. I realize that I'm bringing up politics, so bear with me here just for a second. Though our separation of powers prevents this sort of total authority being vested in one individual or branch of the government, at least theoretically, we still see degrees of power exercised across the branches of our government and even some at the local level. We see this sort of imperium, this sort of, this is where the buck stops, this is who gets to make the decision. Now, why do I bother bringing up politics and risking sidetracking all of your minds so that you're not listening to the message anymore? Because I believe this idea of imperium is central to David's whole point in Psalm 24. Not the sort of feeble, weak imperium that we see in the authority of human leaders and politicians, but God's ultimate imperium, authority, sovereignty over everything. In Psalm 24, David highlights God's imperium as Lord of creation, as the holy God of Jacob, as the Lord of hosts, and as the King of glory. And I believe David asks us, begs us to ask the question, how do we approach a God like this? Read with me from Psalm 24 here this morning. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, we have already sung your praises. We've sung of the truths of the gospel, the truths of your love for us, of your awesome power and might. And Lord, I know in my own heart, it is so easy to approach you with a nonchalant nature, to not consider that you are the king of glory. Psalm 24 reminds us of that. And so I pray that as we study it together this morning, that you would 
give light to our discussion, Lord, that you would speak through me and that you would be active in the hearts and minds of those of us that are sitting here today. Lord, without your spirit, without your help, we will never get a glimpse of who you really are. So we pray that you would do that together this morning, that you would do that in our church this morning, that you would give us an expanded vision for who you are through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do hope that you've been as challenged and encouraged by our study in the Psalms over the course of the summer. I know it's been a challenge for me as poetry isn't my natural bent, um, but it's been so encouraging to see again and again Christ in what is known as the songbook of the Bible, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. In case you haven't been with us, let me try and catch you up to speed on some of what we've seen over the course of the summer. In Psalm 1, we saw Christ as the perfect, blessed man. In Psalm 2, we saw Christ as the Lord's final anointed king reigning over the nations of the earth. In Psalm 69, he was the zealous protector of his father's house. And in Psalm 40, he was the joyful, obedient son. He was rejected as king but became the ultimate cornerstone in Psalm 118. In Psalm 41, we saw Judas betray Jesus as Christ was the faithful but betrayed friend. Then he was forsaken, sacrificed, and made atonement for sins in Psalm 22. He was incorruptible and raised as our Savior in Psalm 16. And then last week, we saw him as the ascended conqueror and head of the church in Psalm 68. My prayer as we've been walking through these Psalms is that you would get a glimpse for who Christ is and how he's anticipated throughout the book of Psalms. And no Psalm is that truer than here in Psalm 24. And I think what helps us understand Psalm 24 is David asks a fascinating question in verse 3 that forms the backbone, forms the structure of what he's wrestling with. Did you see it? Verse 3, he said, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? David essentially asks, how do we approach God? And it's that question that I want us to wrestle with our time together here this morning. This morning, we'll see three principles about how we approach God. Three things that David reveals about the way, the attitude we should have as we approach the king of glory. First, we begin our approach to God by, look at verse 1 and 2, respecting his ownership. Respecting his ownership. Straight out of the gate, David recognizes God's creation and ownership of everything. He says, God owns everything. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. Now, in order to rightly understand this next section, we have to take a moment and we have to pause and talk about an interpretive rule when it comes to Hebrew poetry. When we read poetry, we tend to think in terms of rhythm and rhyme. We think in terms of, I don't know, the way we read songs and, and terms of that rhyme and the, the cadence. But Hebrew poetry doesn't work that way. Hebrew poetry is actually built around comparative lines, what's known as parallelism. You'll have two lines, and they'll essentially say the same thing, or they'll contrast each other to make a point. And the point is repetition for emphasis more than uniqueness. Kind of like saying deja vu all over again, right? You understand what I'm saying? So with that in mind, what we see here is the ownership includes both everything and everyone. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. That's like the first half. The fullness and the fullness thereof. That's the second half. And then he repeats it. He parallels it in the next stanza. The world and those who dwell therein. You see how the comparison works. The earth is the Lord's, and he's talking about the world. The fullness thereof, and he means those who dwell therein. There's that parallel, and what he's trying to say is that 
everything and everyone belongs to God. First, everything, the earth and the world. Now, it's worth noting that he's not just limiting this to the, the land or to even the globe that we're on. What he means is all of creation. Everything that has ever been made belongs to God. He also means everyone. Did you pick up on that? He said, and the fullness thereof, or all that fills it. Then in the second phrase, he clarifies, and those who dwell therein. God is the owner of everything, and God is the owner of everyone who has ever lived. Now, this may not have occurred to you before. This may not be something that you naturally come to a conclusion on, but God is the possessor of everyone who has ever lived. Think about that for just a moment. Every person who has ever lived belongs to God. Regardless of that person's opinions on the subject, regardless of whether or not we admit that we belong to God, regardless of whether or not your coworkers and your family and your friends realize that God is the owner, everything and everyone belongs to God. Or in the immortal words of the 19th century Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Think about that. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything and everyone that has ever existed belongs to God. Yet the skeptic, and possibly you sitting here this morning, are finding in your own heart saying, well, why? Why does God, or why does everything belong to God? What right does he have to that sort of ownership? Here David is not, he's not silent. Look at verse 2. He answers, God owns everything because God created everything. Look at verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. His point is, God owns everything because God created everything. The truth is emphasized by this couplet. Did you notice the parallelism again? Right? Point A, he has founded it. Second line, he has established it. Point A, or B, upon the seas, upon the rivers. Then he says, God has created, God has founded, God has established everything and everyone that has ever lived. He hearkens back and recalls Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything that exists. And, and in addition to God's pre-existence, this idea that God existed before time, before anything that ever existed, God was there, and he brought it all into creation, it also emphasizes how God is the founder of even the fabric of what we see. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, if you're not familiar, the term, in the beginning God created, is a Hebrew term, barah. And barah specifies creation out of nothing. The, the theologians use the term ex nihilo, out of nothing. So God created the matter that then is the creation of everything. Do you get that? It's not like God just took what was there and kind of rearranged it and said, this looks good. 
God created the stuff, the substance that everything is made out of, and then made it into the things we see and the people we see and everything we know. God founded it and God established it. God created it, so God owns it. And he goes on, and we see this really strange phrase, this odd phrase to us, it upon the seas or upon the rivers. This sort of terminology, we get a little bit confused. This is, it's worth noting, this is phenomenological language. He's speaking of kind of the phenomenon of what we see. It's not technical. Some people will read a sentence like this and be like, well, David clearly believed what ancient people believed, and they thought that the earth was just floating on this sea of water. No, that's not David's point. What he's doing is he's remembering Genesis 1.9. Do you recall the terminology in Genesis 1.9? In the creation narrative, what we read is, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So David hearkens back to this sort of imagery, and he says, God created everything. God created everything, and as a result, God owns everything. It's worth noting here, just a moment, we're going to move on, because as 21st century Christians, we have a tendency to move on, I think, too quickly, so don't hear this wrong, to redemption. And we sometimes miss the beginning and the foundation for the redemption that we have in the story of the Bible. Francis Schaeffer puts it this way, and I love the way he articulates this. He says, if we are being fully scriptural, we do not praise him, being God, first because he saved us, but first because he is there and always has been. And we praise him because he willed all other things, including man, into existence. So God would deserve our praise and would deserve our worship even if he didn't redeem us, simply because he created everything. The principle is that God is the creator and owner of everything and everyone that has ever existed. You cannot see anything that isn't a work of God's creation. And in so far as that's true, it's much like how you own a piece of art that you create. Right? I don't know how many of you are artists or fancy yourself as artists, either painters or drawer, drawers, I don't think drawers is the right word, but you know what I mean, sculptors, something like that, right? And when you create a piece of art, you may like it or you may dislike it, but you get to choose what happens to it. So you may hang it up on your wall because you think it looks nice, you may give it to somebody else because they think it looks nice, you may burn it because you think it turned out horribly, but you get to make the choice because you created it. It's the same point he's making here. Because God created everything, God owns everything. Which means we approach God first by respecting his ownership. And if you embrace that, then you realize that we must approach God humbly. If you recognize God as the creator and owner of everything and everyone, the only logical response is to approach him humbly. To say, you are God and I am not. And I belong to you. This is important in a number of ways. This idea of God's creation and God's ownership helps frame our worldview. It refutes what you'll hear in popular science today of God or of matter being eternal or matter being self-created. Essentially, there's only three ways you can approach what you see in the world. 
Either everything you see, the matter around us, has always existed, or it didn't exist and somehow it came into existence all on its own, or it didn't exist and then God created it. Three options you have. The Bible refutes the first two. It says matter has not always existed, and it didn't just spontaneously appear out of nothing. God created everything we see. In addition to that, it also refutes, and I'm going to use some terms here, so bear with me, it refutes both docetism and Gnosticism. Now, you don't need to remember those terms. What you need to understand is those are heresies that basically believe that the created world is evil, but things that are spiritual are good. And it's not as popular today as it was, though there are still some veins of that going through our culture, this idea that somehow the physical world is substandard or it's evil and it's not to be considered. But spiritual things are of ultimate value. When God created everything, he boldly declared, it's very good. The things we see in the world are not evil. In fact, this is actually the psalm, if you recall, that Paul quoted in 1 Corinthians 10.26 when he was addressing the issue of eating meat or not eating meat, or eating meat. And some of them were like, meat is evil, right? We shouldn't eat it because it's been offered to idols. And Paul is like, everything that God has created is good. He quotes from Psalm 24 to refute that misunderstanding. So it refutes this eternal or self-creating idea of matter. It refutes this heresy. But I think quite possibly and most personally what we note here is that this refutes human individual autonomy. One of the most pervasive lies in our culture today is that as human beings, we are the masters of our own fates. We are in charge of our existence. We get to do whatever we want with the time and the money and the treasures that we have. Psalm 24 boldly says, not true. God owns everything and everyone that has ever existed because he created them. So I would encourage you to ask yourself the question. Try to assess this in your own heart. Have I embraced this sort of individual autonomy? I get to live however I want to in spite of God's ownership. Ask yourself a few questions. Who is the primary concern when I make decisions about my time? Is it God? Or is it me and what I want? As I lay out my schedule, as I prioritize my calendar, as I choose when I get up and when I go to bed, who is the primary concern? God's glory or what I want? Who is the primary concern when you make decisions about your money? When you choose how to budget what God has allowed you to steward on his behalf? When you choose what to buy and what not to buy? When you choose how to spend things and how to save and how to invest, who is the primary concern? Is it God and his glory, or is it you and what you want? Who is the primary concern when you make decisions about your relationships? Who you will date, who you will marry, who you will hang out with, who you will work with, where you will go, where you will live, what church you will be a part of? Is it God, or is it what you want? Does God's glory impact those decisions, or is it primarily about what I want to do with my relationships? And lastly, who is the primary concern when you make decisions about your thoughts, about what you think about and what you allow into your head, about the music you listen to and the movies you watch and the time you spend and what thoughts you take captive? Is it primarily you, 
or is it primarily God? Your answer to those questions reveals what you really think. It reveals if you really respect God's ownership of everything, even you. What do you do with your time, with your money, with your relationships, with your thoughts? I believe that David is making the case that if we respect God's ownership, we will approach him humbly. We will submit everything we have, everything we are, everything we own to his ownership and seek to glorify him rather than just use it for our own pleasure. In addition to respecting God's ownership, though, David also shows us another way we approach God. We approach God secondarily by seeking his face. Look at verses 3 through 6. Here we find that he begins with a fundamental question. He poses this question, and this is where we began. Verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The question David is asking is, who can approach a holy God? Who can approach a God that created and owns everything? This is understandable. This is a major Old Testament theme that we see throughout Scripture. Remember in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they were removed from God's presence because they had embraced sin and rebellion against God. In the book of Exodus, explains the elaborate tabernacle instructions and the house of God among his people. The question of who can approach a holy God is the primary question of the book of Leviticus. And it's an ominous threat throughout the book of Numbers as God's people continually rebel against him again and again. The question is, how do we approach God without being killed? Without being righteously destroyed because we're not holy? Hold on to that question. David begins to answer that question in verse 4. He gives four qualifications. Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's like, oh, David, that's it? Right? All you need is clean hands. Perfect external obedience to everything God has called you to do. And, oh, wait, hold on. Also, you need a pure heart. You need perfect internal purity. No deviant thoughts, no malicious intentions, no grumbling, no slander in your own head. You just need internal purity. Okay, if that's not easy enough, how about we go on? Who does not lift up his soul to what is false? No, no falsehood, no hypocrisy, no double-mindedness in any way. Anybody feeling convicted yet? Okay, if none of those have gotten you yet, how about the end of verse 4? And does not swear deceitfully. There's no deceit present whatsoever. Anybody noticing a problem? You find yourself going, well, that doesn't sound so bad. You're probably not human. Right? None of us can say that those four things are true of us. And even that list can't be said to be exhaustive of God's moral law. But he's saying that to approach God, we have to have a perfectly obedient life and a perfectly pure heart. Does that sound challenging enough to anyone? Because we have a tendency to embrace this sort of mindset in our culture that says, as long as I keep the externals okay, I'm fine. As long as I look good on the outside, then I 
I'm basically in good shape. I'm better than everyone else around me, so I'm pretty much holy. David offers a bit of a different standard here. He says it may be possible to keep the outside theoretically clean, but what about the heart? It's the difference between having a muddy car and having a messy car. I don't know if you're one of those people who loves to wash your car, and you run over here all the time, and you have a subscription to one of the car washing services, and there's never an ounce of dirt on the outside of your car. But you, we all know those people, right, that the car looks really nice on the outside, but you open the door, and, and the bottles, and the cans, and the leftover fries, and all of that just spills out. We have a tendency to approach our spiritual walk that way thinking that if I keep the exterior clean and nobody can tell, then the mess that's inside is never going to come out. God's standard here is a little bit different. He speaks to the internal purity. I love the way C.H. Spurgeon refers to this. He says this, sin is not a splash of mud on man's exterior. It is a filth generated from within himself. Same thing that David's saying here. When he clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We've reached a bit of an impasse. Hold on to that conflict you're feeling. Let's move on, because he explains in verse 5 a blessing that's offered for those that can achieve this level of purity. Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Note that this righteousness will be a gift from the God of his salvation. It's worth noting here that he notes this righteousness, this uprightness, is a gift from God. He doesn't say it's something you earn by working hard enough. He says this is a gift. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then he summarizes it all in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob. We should seek his face, or as Jeremiah 29, 13 puts it, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But we've reached an impasse. Because as we've already noted, God is unapproachably holy to humanity. To approach the holy place, to ascend the hill without being morally pure externally and internally would result in our death. Much like a bonfire that if you make it too hot, you're sitting there next to it and you're going, I think I'm losing the hair on my face. To approach God without righteousness, without holiness, is to be scorched, to be burnt. So what are we to do? We have a conflict here. We realize that we have to approach God. He calls us to seek his face, such as the generation who seeks him, and we realize we must approach God righteously, but what are we to do? We don't fit the qualifications in verse 4. I'm sure many of you feel what Paul writes in Romans 3. So flip to the right of my Bible. Go ahead and flip to Romans 3 in your Bible. Paul's condemnation of the sin that exists in our hearts is fairly absolute here. If David's words in Psalm 24 aren't enough... Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 11 through 18, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Concurring with David, Paul's assessment here in Romans 3 is that no one qualifies according to verse 4. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Which means we need some help. In verse, 20, or in verse 4 of Psalm 24, we see these qualifications. We recognize that we don't meet up to it, and we recognize that we need the clean hands and the pure heart of another. We recognize that we need the blessing and the righteousness as a gift from God. We recognize that we need one who perfectly sought God's face. We need one who could ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in the holy place righteous without being wiped away. We need Christ. The truth is none of us lives up to the standard of Psalm 4. None of us deserves to approach God in our own righteousness by our own standard of merit. So God did it for us. God sent Christ, who lived a life with clean hands, had a perfectly pure heart, where there was no hypocrisy and no deceit ever in him to be our righteousness for us. That is the heart of the gospel. That we couldn't do this in our own strength. We couldn't approach God in our own power because we would be vaporized. And rightly so. So God sent Christ. Which means that if we truly desire to seek God's face like we're commanded to here, then we must approach him righteously. But that means we must approach him through Christ. You cannot approach God the Father, except through the person of Christ. To do so would be death. But through Christ, granting us his righteousness, us being seen through the lens of Christ's blood, his perfect life, and his atoning death on our behalf, we have the privilege of seeking God's face. That's amazing. That is amazing. And it gets better. Because when we begin by respecting God's ownership and by seeking his face, he results in us being able to know him. It results in us identifying God. And we're able to recognize his identity. Verses 7 through 10. Now what you'll notice in verses 7 through 10 is you'll note a repeated theme. Verse 7 and 9 are identical. Kind of like our songs sometimes repeat verses over again. He notes what we read in verse 7 and 9 the same way twice. He speaks of welcoming the king. He says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about the idea of a triumphal entry where the king would return to the city. And here he recalls that imagery and he talks to the gates, to the doors of the city. And he says, doors, look up and see who's coming. And when you see who's coming, you're going to fling yourselves wide open. It's what's known as an anthropomorphism. Now, if you failed high school, 
literature, anthropomorphism is when objects or animals take on human traits to emphasize something. He does that here. He speaks as if the gates can speak and can react in themselves. He's, he's not, again, he doesn't believe that the gates are sentient. He's just saying, like, the gates would recognize, even the gates recognize the glorious king when he returns. So he says they welcome this king in. They fling themselves wide open because they recognize who he is. And who is he? Who is he? He asks that question in verse 8 and 10. Who is this king of glory? That is a fabulous question. Who is this king of glory? He answers it. He gives three answers in those two verses. He says, the Lord, strong and mighty. He says, the Lord, mighty in battle. And he says, the Lord of hosts. He gives these three battle images of God as this victorious king, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Here, I can't help myself. I've got going through my head. If you you know that old Petra song of this, you know what I mean? Okay, there's a few of you. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go Google Petra and these lyrics. It's an old 80s band, okay? So if you're younger than I am and you go Google who Petra is, we'll start there. But it's, it's these words. Like, I can't help it, it's going through my head. But he, he gives this military imagery, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts. Now that's the Lord Sabaoth, if you know that terminology. If you've ever sung, a mighty fortress is our God, right? A mighty fortress is our God, right? A bulwark, and you go, what? What's a bulwark? I have no idea what we're talking about, right? And then you get and you go, Lord Sabaoth, his name. And you go, I have no idea what that means. That's this, Lord of hosts. The God of angel armies who commands the innumerable armies of heaven. The God of hosts, Lord Sabaoth. He images God as this ultimate victorious king and he responds, He is the king of glory. God is the king of glory. And I love this. I I don't know how many of you know who Vadi Bakum is. I love the way he puts this. He says, God is not running for God, it's not an election. Right? His point is, there is no nomination process. There is no candidating and primaries. There is no general election to see if enough people will vote for him. There is no peaceful transition of power. God is God. Right? He will never be deposed. He will never be dethroned. He will never be overthrown or impeached or voted out of office. He is the eternal king of glory. Deny that at your own peril. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This is the sort of realization, the sort of identification when we embrace approaching God as the creator and owner, when we approach him righteously through the blood and work of Christ, We see God for who he is, the incredible king of glory, the eternal king of glory, the all-powerful king of glory, the uncontested king of glory. Which means when we recognize his identity, we realize that we approach God reverentially. I realize that's an old word. That's not one that we use very often. We approach God with reverence. 
We approach him with awe. We approach him with wonder. We approach him with timidity, recognizing he is the king of glory. And I fear that this has been somewhat lost in our day, in our modern evangelical era. We're very comfortable approaching God as father. We're comfortable approaching God as friend. We're comfortable approaching God as comforter. And all of those things are true. We've spoken of many of them in our study in the Psalms this summer. But I wonder, when was the last time you approached God as the Lord strong and mighty? When was the last time, thinking about your approach of God, you approached him as the Lord mighty in battle? That you approached him as the Lord of hosts with the angel armies at his beck and call? It is an incredible reality that we approach God as a friend and we approach God as a father through Christ. But we do not lose the reality that we approach God as the sovereign over all creation, who has absolute imperium and authority over everything and everyone that has ever existed. That weight, that transcendence of God should weigh on us. We need to recapture the wonder. We need to recapture the reverence. We need to recapture the respect. And yes, even, because it's a biblical term, the fear of the Lord. This is what the saints of old possessed. If you read authors from years gone by, the way they express the awe and wonder and magnificence of God is humbling. And it's so easy for us to just walk into the service and sing to God. It's so easy for us to just walk home and pray to God. And those things should not be hard because of Christ. But we should wonder at the fact that we are invited into the throne room to pray to our Father in heaven. We should wonder that we have the privilege of singing together with his saints about his magnificent glory and his redemption of us. Those things should humble us. If we truly recognize God's identity, then we will approach him reverentially. We will approach him with reverence and awe. Now, I recognize that over many of the psalms that we've studied this summer, the messianic fulfillment, the imagery of Christ, was sometimes a little difficult to pick out. My hope is that as we were reading through Psalm 24, it wasn't nearly as difficult this week. Did you pick up on anything that seemed to indicate Christ was present here? I believe everything we've discussed in Psalm 24 has biblical support for being connected to the person and work of Christ. Now, why do I say that? Forgive me for just a moment. We're going to do a little jumping around in our Bibles, so we're going to do some Biblical gymnastics. So get your Bibles ready. Don't get discouraged. I'll give you a moment to turn to the passages. We began in Psalm 24 by talking about how God is declared to be the creator and owner of everything. Do we see that being true anywhere in the Bible of Christ? Turn to the right in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the third or the fourth book of the New Testament. And John seems to capture this idea better than any of the other gospel writers. When in John 1.1, he intentionally picks up on Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and he writes these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
And let me give you an interpretive insight into John's gospel. The Word is Christ. He says, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He highlights that Christ is the creator of the universe. And as a result, he shares joint ownership. Flip to the right in your Bibles to Colossians 1, 15 and 16. We see this emphasized by Paul writing to the church in Colossae as well. This speaks of the preeminence of Christ. I love this section in Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Again, he's speaking of Christ here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he doesn't mean the first created being, but I don't have time to go into all of that. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Christ is the creator of all things and the owner of all things. Psalm 24 declares that God is the creator and owner of everything. The rest of Scripture speaks to how Christ is the creator and owner of everything. We must humbly respect Christ's ownership. As we approach God, we must recognize that Christ is the owner and creator and sustainer of everything as well. In the second section of Psalm 24, we were called to seek God's face with clean hands and pure hearts. Immediately following his other text in Romans chapter 3, Paul gives what I believe is one of the greatest passages in the entirety of the New Testament. The solution for the lack of righteousness that he described in the beginning that I read earlier. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Think of this in light of the condemnation of Psalm 24. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation now, a propitiation idea is just that sort of a payment. He paid the penalty for us by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then this verse, I love this verse. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so God's righteous wrath, he doesn't just overlook the fact that none of us achieve the standard of Psalm 24, verse 4. But instead, he offers his son to pay the penalty that we deserved so that he can be declared to be both just, not indifferent to sin, and justifier, giving righteousness as a gift to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Psalm 24 calls us to seek God's faith with clean hand, or face with clean hands and a pure heart. We recognize we must righteously seek Christ's face. We do that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, Psalm 24 envisions the glorious return of the King of glory. 
This city that opens wide its gates to accept the victorious king as he returns home. And I can't help but think of Philippians chapter 2. Turn the right in your Bibles to Philippians. One more. This is the last one, I promise. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is speaking of Christ's work on the cross. How Christ humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. And then in verse 9, he says this, Therefore, in light of Christ's work, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does that sound at all to you like the King of glory coming back and the gates being thrown open wide saying, He is the King of glory? As Christ the triumphant King returns in victory. I think all of what we've seen in Psalm 24 highlights the person and work of Jesus Christ. His ownership and creation of everything, his righteousness on our behalf in order to seek God's face, and him as the glorious king of glory. In Psalm 24, we see Christ as the Lord of creation and the king of glory. He is the king of glory. Let's pray. Father, these truths are too wonderful for us. They stretch the imagination. They exhaust our human ability to consider. Not only that you existed before creation, before time, but that you chose to send your son to die on our behalf, to give us his righteousness so that we could seek your face so that we could be known by you and that we could know you. Father, these truths are overwhelming. And I pray that for us sitting here today, they wouldn't be limited to just interesting tidbits and thoughts, but that you would impress upon our hearts and minds just how amazing you are, just how wonderful Christ's work for us is. And that this reminder that you are the king of glory, that you possess all sovereignty and all power and all control, would stir our hearts to worship, would motivate us to obedience, that we get to know that king. Father, thank you for that opportunity. We pray in Christ's name.